I'd like to turn with you this evening to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse 7, where Paul writes these words, To you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The Lord Jesus is coming back. The Lord Jesus is coming back. But it will not at all be like the first time when he came. Recently I was watching some videos of a chief executive of a company. And he joined the company incognito in disguise as a trainee. Nobody else knew it was the chief executive. And there he was humbly learning the trade of the other workers. But as he worked through the day he spotted a bully. One of the managers in the place of work, which he was responsible for, was bullying the other workers very badly, and he couldn't restrain himself. So he takes the manager outside and he tears him off a strip, as you can imagine. Here is the chief executive, the owner of the company, the one who runs it, and all friends. He gives that poor store manager a terrible showing off, showing the turning down. He tells him off and he uh, puts him in his place very quickly. Well, that's just a little glimpse. The first time the Lord Jesus Christ came in modesty, in humility, in gentleness. He was born in a stable. He was born to a poor family. He was born in Bethlehem and then lived in Nazareth, which the Jews scoffed at. He worked as a carpenter for 30 years. Nobody knew much about him at all. Were it not for that one visit when he was 12 years old to the temple, we wouldn't know anything about what he did for those first 30 years. When he comes the second time, there will be no doubt. He will come in royal splendor, in majesty, and in glory as the Lord of Lords and the King of Glory, in the glory of his Father, with the clouds of heaven, which are symbols of his celestial authority and power. He will come in his own personal glory, and every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We'll be obliged. We'll have to acknowledge it. Here is the king. Here is the owner. Here is the governor of all things. And one of the telling signs which Paul reminds us about here is he will come with his mighty angels, servants. Now we have an unfortunate tendency to confuse angels with fairies and pixies. And elves. Perhaps you do that in your Christmas cards. You see these rather innocuous little girls with wings and you think, well, that's an angel. Oh, no, friends, that's not an angel. Angels are beings of extraordinary power. One angel brought Egypt to its knees. One angel destroyed the firstborn and brought tears and wailing to every household in Egypt. One angel destroyed the strongest army of the known world. 185,000 crack troops of the Assyrian army, notorious for its ferocity and its savagery, were brought to death in one night. Four cities of the plain, with over a million inhabitants, were destroyed by two angels in one night. Oh no, friends, angels are beings of extraordinary authority and power. And when the Lord Jesus comes back, he won't come with one or two angels, he will come with millions of angels each one of them beings of power. Whenever we read even of a prophet meeting with an angel, 
It's a near-death experience. Do you remember the guards at the tomb when they met the angels? They shook like dead men. It was not just a near-death experience, it very nearly was death for them. And these are just the servants. These are just the footmen. These are just his, his minions. What about their captain? What about their lord? When the Lord Jesus comes back, he will come back in all his glory and majesty and splendor as the incarnate word of God. The first time he came secretly and quietly. Only a few knew about it. When he was presented in the temple, only Anna and Simeon seemed to recognize him as his parents bring him. But when he comes back, he will come back openly and manifestly. There will be no doubt at all about his coming. And if there is doubt about his coming, he hasn't come. If there's any doubt, he hasn't come. There will be a huge noise. There will be the sound of blaring trumpets. The elements will begin to melt. All the world will be aware. Oh, friends, we don't believe this nonsense of a secret rapture. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in his glory and majesty, there will be absolutely no doubt. It will be like lightning from one end of the heaven to the other. When he comes, or friends, all will know. When he came the first time, he came in gentleness and in kindness. He was healing. He was blessing. He was restoring. Only once did he curse something, the fig tree. And sometimes we see flashes of his anger, flashes of his indignation as he drives the thieves, the traders, out of the temple with that cord of ropes. Or as he denounces the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, we see flashes of his anger and of his fury. But generally, he was gentle, he was patient, and he was lowly. Do you remember how he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey? So lowly, the king of kings. When he comes back the second time, it won't be like that, friends. He will come back in severity, and justice in the full glory of his fury and of his anger. God is slow to anger, but when his anger is kindled, there is nothing like it. A hurricane, an earthquake, a volcano erupting, they can't begin to capture the fury of God's anger. His anger burns like fire against sin. We read that passage in Isaiah chapter 63, and it's really quite frightening. It's one of the most terrifying passages of the Bible. It describes how the Messiah will come back trampling his enemies down under his feet. When you say to me, that's the Old Testament. No, it's not. Turn with me, if you like, to Revelation and chapter 14, and you'll see what I mean. This is what John the Apostle says, again, of the Messiah's coming back. Chapter 14 and verse 19, he says, of verse 18, he says this, And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice, loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. Here we think he's speaking to Christ. And gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles 
by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs, 185 miles, up to the bridle of a horse, there was blood. Do you see, friends, how terrifying this is? Do you see how serious this is? There will be a severe and exact retribution for sin. There will be an exact penalty paid. Sometimes the Chinese emperors would travel in disguise amongst their own people, amongst their followers. And often they would discover secrets they would never have learned from their golden thrones. And when their disguise was unmasked, they would bring fierce and unremitting justice. Or friends, the Lord Jesus Christ's coming will be in severity, it will be open, and it will be glorious when he comes. But if they are punished, and if the punishment is so severe, what are the crimes? What's the crime that he is punishing? Well, Paul mentions it here for us in verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Here is the crime. They don't know God. It's a carefully calibrated retribution. It's a precisely measured judgment and recompense for sin. Well, you say to me, what's so bad about that? Not knowing about God? Many people don't know about God. But you see, the problem here is this is a willful ignorance. It's a deliberate suppression of the truth. When I worked on the wards, sometimes it was my duty to have to break very bad news to patients. I had to say to them, I'm very sorry, but the scan shows something that looks like a growth. And we think the growth has spread. And that means it's probably a tumour. And what we're really saying in infect, and I would say it in a gentle, progressive way, is we're dealing with cancer. So you have a cancer and it's beyond cure. But sometimes as you're beginning to unfold these dark and difficult things, patients would just stop their ears. They would stop you in mid-flow and you, they would say, don't tell me anymore, just tell my family. I don't want to hear any more than this. I can't bear it. Don't tell me anymore. Well, we understand that. We can understand why somebody wouldn't want to hear such horrible news, such difficult tidings. But friends, here is grace. Here is kindness. Here is the love of God. And yet people deliberately pull down the shutters. They deliberately close their ears. They deliberately reject the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. They re deliberately reject the opportunity of repentance. They scoff and they repudiate God's being and his call, not because of the scientific evidence, not because of the genetics, not because of the geology, not because of the astronomy, because all of these things point very clearly to the creator, properly understood. No, they prefer to safeguard their lusts. They prefer to harbour their sins, and they should have known. Paul makes this very explicit in the, in the epistle to the Romans. He says this in chapter 1 and verse 20. From, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world were clearly, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse for not knowing there's a God. No excuse for not recognising the Creator. No excuse for not seeking His face. No excuse at all. But sadly, the situation is worse. Paul goes on at the end of the chapter to say this. 
who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do those things, but have pleasure in others that do them too. What a terrible position. A willful ignorance, a preferring not to know, a reckless indifference. What would you think of somebody who had a precious job interview and on the day that they set their alarm clock, the alarm goes off, they smash the clock, they say, I don't want to hear that, I don't want to know that, and then of course they're late for the interview. Who have they got to blame? The clock, the job, the interview notice? They've got no one to blame but themselves. What do you think of somebody who saw the smoke filling up in the kitchen from burnt toast or from some burning pot and rips the smoke alarm out and smashes it on the floor? Who have they got to blame for the house burning down or for the, for the uh, kitchen being damaged? But there's a second aspect to this. And Paul describes it also in verse 8. He says this, Inflaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine a strange situation. Imagine there's a hospital, and I've been in this position, where a man deliberately starts to set fires around the hospital. And in the process, he tries to disable the fire alarm system. And he, uh, he succeeds. The hospital's aflame, and the hospital starts to burn, or the nursing home, if you want a smaller institution, starts to burn down and he gets caught inside the building that he's set alight. He goes up the stairs and of course he's trapped on one of the higher levels and the fire brigade eventually come out despite the alarm being disabled. And they come to him and they say to him, come down, jump onto the ladder, jump into the net, we can help you, we can save you. What does he do? He makes a rude gesture at them, he says, and he goes back inside. He curses them, he blasphemes them, and he slanders them, and then he goes back into the building to perish. What do you think of a man like that? Not only has he broken the law, not only has he committed a great crime, he's refused and rejected any relief or help that was offered to him as well. And unbelief is like that. Unbelief is exactly like that. In fact, in many ways, unbelief is worse than that. Unbelief is disobedience of the most evil kind. It is a deliberate insult to God. It is an offensive crime before God. God is so good to us. He's so patient. We're biting at him. Well, friends, faith is a command. It is a call. And if we reject it, it is disobedience. Some people say, well, religion is like your diet. Some people like their food spicy, some people like it sugary, some people like uh, 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 chewy, stewy things, other people like fried things. And you can have a bit of Hinduism, a bit of Buddhism, a bit of Islam if you like. No, friends, that's not what faith is like. Faith is looking to God and hearing what he says. Faith is looking to God and hearing what he says. And obeying it, doing it, trusting his warning, listening to his promise, looking to his dear son, to the saviour, trusting in him, and leaving sin behind. That's what faith is. It's not like a choice of colour for your living room or for your sofa. It's a matter of life and death. 
It's a matter of eternity. Faith is not, friends, a matter of choice or personal taste. It's a matter of obedience to God's call. Imagine a drug addict and he smashes his car in an accident while he's high. He wounds his arm very badly so it's nearly cut off. And the ambulance comes to rescue him and to help him. And he he races out of the car with a knife with his remaining hand and he tries to slash and stab at the ambulance men. And he even slashes the tires of the ambulance. So not only can they not help him, they can't help others either until the tires are replaced. Not only has that man broken God's law, he's rejected the help, he's spurned the the rescue. And all friends, if you've lived in theft or adultery or idol worship or blasphemy or lust or lying, it's one thing. You deserve to go to hell. You deserve to be cast away from God. You deserve to be thrown into the pit of his anger. But if you've hated his remedy too, if you've hated his rescue too, where is the hope for you then? Where is the blessing for you then? Unbelief is the crown of sin. It is the climax of our rebellion. It is the cream, if you like, on the rotten cake of our depravity. I wonder if you know about that passage where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of a man in hell. We don't often get such clear glimpses. And he speaks about this man crying out for relief. And then crying out for rescue for his brothers to be warned. And he says to Abraham, I have five brethren. Let Lazarus go back and warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham says to him, they have Moses. They have the Bible. They have the scriptures. They have the warning and the testimony of God's word. And he says, but they won't hear that. But if somebody goes back from the dead, then perhaps they'll hear And Abraham says, if they won't listen to God's word, if they won't listen to the scriptures, if they won't listen to the testimony, they won't believe if somebody rises from the dead. Their hearts are too hard. Unbelief is the crown of our depravity. If you will not listen to scripture, if you will not hear his call and his persuading invitation, not even a resurrection from the dead of a friend or a loved one will save you then. Unbelief is especially ugly in the sight of God. Well, friends, faith is obedience. Obedience to what? The Ten Commandments? No. No, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. Faith is obedience to Christ. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And it's trusting him. He says, come to me that you might have life. Very often the New Testament describes... Faith as obedience, because that's what it is. We listen to what God says, by his grace, by his power, we do it and live. Will you do it? Will you turn to him? Will you trust him? Will you seek him? Will you leave your sins behind? Follow him and he will empower you and deliver you. We can't cleanse our own hearts. We can't change our own lives. We can't break the chains of our sinful habits. We can't purify our thoughts and our minds and our tongues he can he can he can if you turn to him and come to him and say saviour i'm unclean 
but if he wants, you can make me clean. He will. He will. Well, in verse 9, Paul speaks about the punishment of those who will not know God and will not hear the gospel. He says this, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I wonder if you've heard of the tyrant Chairman Mao. I wonder if you've heard of the tyrant Pol Pot. Both of them died in relative peace, but the two of them are responsible for the deaths of millions, millions of innocent people. I wonder if you've heard of Joseph Mengele. He was called the angel of death. He was the wicked physician who haunted Auschwitz and tortured, especially the twins in Auschwitz. But he died in relative peace in Argentina in the 1960s or 70s, I think. Have they escaped justice? Have they escaped the recompense for their sin? By no means, friends. By no means. Paul speaks here about an everlasting degradation. An everlasting wasting, never ceasing, never ceasing, an everlasting punishment. It will vary in intensity for those who have sinned very greatly, like the men I've mentioned, no doubt it will be particularly intense. For those who've lived in relative obscurity and with relative innocence, perhaps the intensity will be less, but there will be no reprieve. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, it will be too late. There's no reprieve. There's no turning back then. It's too late. There will be no escape. You can't run away from the face of God. He is everywhere. He sees everything. You can't hide or evade his gaze. And there is no appeal. He is absolutely just. In fact, he will often quote your own words and your own judgments to bring you into condemnation, to show you just how foolish and sinful and hypocritical we've been. And then he says, from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, it is in his light there will be no excuses. He knows everything. He knows all the mitigating circumstances. He knows all the reasons why we did something. There's no concealment at all possible before him from the glory of his presence. Do you know there's a rather fearful truth here? Each one of us here tonight, whatever our condition, whether we're in the kingdom of God or outside the kingdom, will glorify God when we die. Even if we're impenitent, we will glorify God. Those that love the Saviour will glorify his mercy, will glorify his power. But those who reject him and despise him will glorify his justice, will glorify his retribution. Is that really what you want to be? An everlasting display of God's anger? An everlasting monument of the effect of sin? Is that what you want your life to be? Well, friends, you think these are the small things? You think I'm playing with words? Look again, friends, at that passage in Revelation. These are the words of uh, the Apostle. He says this in uh, chapter 14, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, that's a kind of sulfurous uh, heat, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment ascends up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. There will be no more place for sin when Christ comes back. There will be absolute dominion. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, with no exception, even if we've rebelled against him all our lives. The knowledge of the glory of God will spread over the earth like the waters cover the sea. What do you say to me? You're trying to frighten us. You're trying to frighten us into the kingdom. You're trying to frighten us into seeking after Christ. You bet I am. You bet I am. The Lord Jesus Christ did exactly that. The apostles did that. Don't you remember the apostle? He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He made Felix tremble when he reminded him of these things. Oh, friends, if you see one of these hapless teenagers watching his iPhone, wandering into the street, a car coming down the road at fast speed, what do you say? One of those things, never mind. Another life lost. No, you shout for all your might. Say, look out, stop. And if you can, you physically get hold of him and stop him. And friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen to your soul? What will happen to your future? What will happen to your life when you die? If you see your neighbor's house, smoke coming out of the window, flames licking up at the window, and you can see they're still asleep, you can see they're still unaware, what do you do? You batter on the door. You warn them. You plead with them. Get out before it's too late. We plead with you, friends, tonight. Don't carry on in sin. Don't carry on carelessly. Look to the Saviour. Trust him and believe in him. Well, Paul has some very lovely words here for us, not just some words of hard, hard, uh, hard things to say. In, chapter, in verse 7 he says this, To you who are troubled, rest with us. To you who are troubled, rest with us. This is a church that was very severely persecuted. They suffered a great deal of tribulation and heartache. And this is what Paul says, Rest, take your ease. This is something to look forward to. This is something in which to take comfort in all your tribulation and heartache. Why is the apostle so confident? Why is he so relaxed? Here is the judge of all mankind. Isn't this the man who used to breathe out threats and slaughter? Isn't this the man who stood by Stephen as he's being stoned and gathered up the clothes? Isn't this the man who compelled Christians to blaspheme by torturing them? Isn't this the man who gave his voice to execute Christians? Why is he comfortable? Why is he so at ease? Well, read on in verse 10, and you'll see. When he shall come to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all them that believe, well, he will be admired. The Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. He will be delighted in but would you delight in a judge, especially if you're guilty? Would you delight in an avenger, especially if you've committed crimes? Would you delight in the coming of a prosecutor, especially if you've fallen short of the Lord? Well, I misread the text, as you'll, some of you may have spotted. When he shall come to be glorified, not by his saints, but in his saints. And to be admired, not by all them that believe, but in them that believe. Look, 
Here is Zacchaeus. Do you remember him? He was a gangster. He was a blackmailer. He was an extortioner. Look what's happened to Zacchaeus. His fellow publicans say, how changed he is. He's giving his money away. He's inviting the saviour of the world into his own home. What about this Matthew? He was an ugly piece of work. He was a nasty collaborator. He was—he uh, sold out on his principles a long time ago. Look at him now. He's opened up his house. What do we hear coming out from the windows? Preaching about repentance. Preaching about repent about righteousness and purity of life. What about the Apostle Peter? He tells us himself he was a party boy at times. Now look at him standing up in Pentecost, preaching to the crowds, calling them to the Saviour calling them to righteousness and temperance. And Paul, what an amazing thing has happened to Paul. This man who was so bigoted, this man who was so ferocious, this ravening wolf of a man. How gentle a lamb he is now. They beat him up and he prays for them. They whip him and strip him naked and you can hear him singing in the prison and praying for those who persecuted him. How Paul has changed. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you will see in great detail what a master craftsman he is in the souls of those who've come to him. What a sculptor of the heart he is. What a genius he is in dealing with lives. What an exquisite tapestry the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have wrought in the, in the beauty and the skill of the lives that they've woven together as one. Well, what a silken purse he makes out of the pig's ears of our lives. Such a treasure he makes of such rubbish. Such gold and silver and precious jewels he makes out of such base and drossy lives. What makes the difference? What made the difference to these men I've mentioned and the women? Magdalene, I, I, I should have mentioned but didn't. What makes the difference? Do you remember Paul? He said, there will be no idolaters in heaven... There will be no adulterers in heaven. There will be no liars in heaven. There will be no fornicators in heaven. There will be no thieves or homosexuals in heaven. There certainly won't be any transvestites in heaven. But he also says this. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you've been changed. You've been washed. What made the difference? Was it coming along to the church? Well, that may have helped. But that didn't make the difference. Was it reading the Bible? Well, that would have been a signpost, but it didn't make the difference. Was it prayer? Well, that might have been the doorway, but it didn't make the difference. What really makes the difference? Paul makes it very clear, because our testimony among you was believed. You trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You trusted in the Saviour. Here's what made the difference. You took to heart this message. Jesus Christ suffered and died for sinful men and women. He saves sinners from their sin. He cleanses the filthiest. He lifts us up out of our squalor. And he breaks the strongest chains. He breaks into the dungeons of our depravity and lifts us up. He bore our hell. The hell we deserve, if we turn to him, he bore it. He took our disgrace and he nailed it to his cross if we turn to him. He buried our disgrace with his own body in the tomb and he rose and he rose.
to justify, to purify and to cleanse all who look to him for salvation, for grace. We glorify him when we confess our sin and he changes us and he blesses us. Oh friends, he took our wounds, he took our shame, our everlasting shame. Soon he will be the lion. Soon he will tear his enemies apart in the way that we've read. Now he is the lamb who stands between us and hell. We have pierced his noble heart with our sins, with our ugly selfishness and with our crimes. Look to him. Turn to him. Forsake your sin. Ask him for his salvation. Ask him for the liberty to please him. Follow him. Trust him. And wait for him. And he will come soon. He will come soon. The apostle gives us two criteria before the day comes. Two tests. One of them is already being met. The apostasy in the churches. More fully, more deeply, in a more unprecedented way than has ever happened before. One of them is already met. The second is yet to come. Turn to him. Seek him. And throw your lot upon our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Come not to judge, but to save. And we look to him. Oh Lord, help us to be ready for that day. Help us to rest with the Apostle in trusting the Saviour. Cleanse us of our sin. Bless us and meet with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.